0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 94. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guests on the show are Wildman Steve Brill, along with his daughter, Violet Brill. Wildman Steve and his daughter, Violet, are expert foragers. They lead foraging tours all across the northeastern U.S., and Steve has published numerous books and an app about foraging for wild edible plants and mushrooms. It was a pleasure to talk with Steve and Violet. They've got a great sense of humor and clearly care very deeply about the natural world. They've made it their mission to teach others about the benefits of foraging for wild foods, and we couldn't be happier to have them on the show today.
1: I'm Wildman Steve Brill, America's go-to guy for foraging. I've been leading foraging tours throughout the greater New York area since 1982. I've written four books. I have an app. I work with the public schools, day camps, land trusts, museums, nature centers, chefs, doctors, herbalists. Uh, I do a lot of work with children, which I really love to do as well. And uh, I guess that's sort of an overview.
2: Yeah, and my name is Violet Brill. I help educate people with my dad, Wildman Steve Brill, about edible, wild, and medicinal plants. And how to use them. And um, I also do lots of bird watching. And um, I'm, I'm pretty much an expert, um, almost an expert bird watcher. And I am an expert um, plant identifier or forager.
0: How old are you, Violet?
2: I'm 12 years old.
0: Is this stuff that sort of crosses over into some of your schoolwork?
2: Um, well, yeah, especially science class, because this year in science, we are um, studying. Um, we're studying like ecosystems and like nature and like insects, and we're doing earth science. So yeah, it definitely crosses into schoolwork this year.
1: Now the bird watching, I didn't teach her yeah. that. She I learned around. it on my
2: own within the last two years, since two thousand fourteen, and it actually is because of school. Um, because I got the first bird watching book I ever got which inspired me to be a bird watcher, was at a school book fair.
0: Oh, cool. So, Steve, now you can be teaching her about uh, foraging, and she can be teaching you about uh, bird identification, right?
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: <laughs> so, Steve, I-, I want to sort of track this interest that you have in, in-, in foraging for-, for wild edible foods uh, back to its source. Um, I mean, what-, what inspired you to to start foraging for wild foods?
1: I became interested in health and nutrition back in the 1980s and started uh, cooking. Uh, First, I just saw a recipe on the side of an oatmeal box and and followed it. And subsequently, I started looking for unusual, exotic ingredients in local uh, ethnic stores. Then one day I was bicycle riding or these ethnic Greek women dressed in black in one of the parks picking something. I asked them what they were doing, but I couldn't understand a word. It was all Greek to me. But I came home with a bag of grape leaves, which I stuffed, and they were delicious. And then I started learning about edible plants on my own. Uh, As I said, I began my first foraging tour in 1982, and it's been a, a lot of fun and quite an adventure.
0: I was introduced to the concept of foraging for wild edibles, by the book Stalking the Wild Asparagus and, and Yule Gibbons. I wonder if there's any influence there, if you were familiar with, with Yule Gibbons and, and the books that he wrote.
1: Uh, that, that was one of the first things I did when I started learning foraging. I got the Peterson Field Guide to Edible Wild Plants, which I don't recommend. There are a lot of mistakes in there. And then I got all of Gibbons' books, which are very inspirational. Uh, but weren't really that good in helping you identify and find the plants in the first place. Uh, so uh, it was a bit of, it was a bit of a struggle. But uh, they were they were great books, and um, uh, to this day I still do not find a lot of wild asparagus. I see little patches of it here and there, seashore habitats, fields. But never in, uh, in huge quantity. Of course, he was in Pennsylvania and I'm in New York. Uh, so there isn't that much here as there is there. Although last uh, uh, last tour I did in Pennsylvania, I also found it in the field in a little patch. Nothing, uh, nothing really substantial.
0: I mean that's that's kind of like the the mythic quality of it, right? Is that uh, stalking the wild asparagus? Is that it's it's not one of those really common wild edibles, right? But it's it's right. sort of this 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 really special treat when you happen to find it. Violet, this is a question for you, actually. I mean, at what point did your dad start introducing you to to foraging?
2: Well, um, I've been doing it all my life. I came on the tour since I was two months old, and uh, and I started teaching the tours. Um, well, I knew basically almost all the, um, and most of the plants when I was um, seven years. Uh, when I was like about like six years old, I knew a lot of plants. And I was helping some people find them. When I was seven, I started helping to lead the tours. And throughout all the years, I pre- um, developed lots of more information. And when I was nine, I was basically... Um, Again I got a little like a little um like law facts and like some new plants here and there, but um, I was teaching college profess um, college professors at Ramapo College when I was nine years old. So basically I've just <laughs> done it all my all my life.
1: Her first tour her first tour was uh, when she was two months old.
0: So uh, I mean Violet, what what do you like most about it? I mean what, what is so what's so fascinating to you about going out and, and searching for wild foods?
2: Um, well, I think the best part about it, um, is just like the fun of it and like getting to teach people about the plants and how to use them and, um, for food uses and for medicinal uses and just in general going out and collecting plants. Um, the most fun part, well, the, most, the best part would be, I, I just think it's having fun, um, I think that the best part of um, foraging is just having fun part with other people and, getting, and for me getting to teach them about other plants. And once other people know plants really well and they're 100% sure that they are edible or, what, or whatever they need to use them, I think they can show like the most easy to recognize plants to some of their friends or family and just being able to spread the knowledge and helping the environment.
1: And even if they're they're, uh, uh, evil, then they want to know if a plant is 100% certain poisonous so they can uh, kill their victims.
2: Like white snake root. Today we saw white snake root (laughs) today on the tour. And white snake root actually um, killed Lincoln's mother because um, the cow nibbled um, on—Lincoln's mother drank the milk um, from a cow— that nibbled on the white snake root leaf. So she got milk, um, uh, milk poisoning um, milk, and got milk sickness and died because of this poisonous plant that we just found today growing in Central Park.
1: Yeah, so don't drink the milk from Lincoln's mom's cow. Uh, it causes something called the trembles where you're, where you're shaking. It uh, interferes with the brain from communicating with the heart and, uh, and lungs. Uh, and it's uh, deadly to almost everyone. There's really only one person that can eat the plant without being harmed. A uh, very famous fellow. Yeah, Donald Trump, he has no brain and no heart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, at some point, you know, this became more than just a hobby for you, obviously. Um, I mean, what made you realize, you know, way back when you first started learning about foraging for wild foods, what made you realize that? You can make a living out of this about teaching people about uh, foraging and identifying wild plants and wild edibles.
1: I was having so much fun. I remember it was in Cunningham Park in Queens. I was having so much fun. The cooking classes I was teaching weren't really going anywhere, and suddenly it just occurred to me: why don't I teach? Uh, why don't I teach foraging? And uh, then I, I had a friend draw up a flyer. And while I was meditating, the, word, uh, the name wild man came into my mind. I said, that's what I'm going to call myself. And I started teaching those plants that I knew. Uh, I, uh, but people kept saying, you know, really, you don't look like a wild man uh, over and over again. So I went to the Army Navy store. I bought a pith helmet and then I grew a beard. Now people say, you know, wild man, you look just like I thought you were going to look <laughs> So I started doing tours with one or two or a handful of people, sending out news releases. This is all snail mail.
2: And just a couple of years ago, we had a tour in Sunken Meadow Park. And on that tour, we had 100 people.
1: Yeah, that was the only time I turned people away. What happened in between is in 1986, I had the good fortune of having two undercover park rangers on my tour. A man and a woman. They said they were married. They never never held hands or kissed. So I figured they'd been married a long time. Uh, they were plants, but not the kind of plants I was looking for. They paid me with marked bills. They had surveillance cameras and walkie-talkies. And after I ate a dandelion, the male ranger ducked behind a tree. All right, there he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger in uh, New York City, popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb up the tree, put me in handcuffs, lest I bopped them on the head uh, with a dandelion. (laughs) They handcuffed me, uh, hauled me off to the police station where they searched my backpack. I don't know if they were looking for weeds or weed, but they um, gave me a desk appearance ticket that said I had to go to court and could face up to a year in jail. And then they made a very bad mistake. They turned me loose. I went home and called every TV station, wire service, radio show, TV show. Next morning, on the way to the newsstand, five cops came after me. What do you want? I said, I haven't eaten a single dandelion. One of the cops says, we don't care. We want your autograph. Uh, So I got on everything from CBS Evening News to uh, Letterman, MTV, the Today Show. Um, I'm still getting publicity now, 30 years later. Uh, from that, I was just on uh, Chelsea Handler's uh, uh, comedy news show and we both on, like- on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I, I like Violet. I have fun doing these tours. I goof around with the kids that come on the tours. And people uh, just get much more environmental awareness. We're collecting renewables, things that are cut down as weeds, that uh, people have on every lawn and every garden that are very delicious, very nutritious foods. No one knows about them. The restaurant chefs don't do anything with them because they don't know what they are uh, either. And I do tons of cooking experiments. Um, so I have, I have a huge amount of recipes. Of course, I publish them in my books and in my app. And uh, experimenting in the kitchen is, is a lot of fun as well.
0: Obviously, foraging is is nothing new. I mean, that's delving back to uh, sort of the evolutionary history of humans as a species, right? I mean, that's how we survived for the majority of our existence on this planet. But, you know, there's definitely something striking about the image that I get of a group of people foraging for uh, wild edible food in Central Park, right? I mean, in this most populous city that we have here in the United States, and the fact that this green space within this enormous city contains all these wild plants that that are edible right i mean it's it's a really fascinating juxtaposition right but i'm i'm still a little hung up on your story about being arrested in central park i mean like what <laughs> i mean on one hand right i mean those undercover cops did you a huge uh, uh i mean that that turned out to be hugely beneficial for you right but i mean what on what basis did they arrest you initially? I mean, what laws were on the books that they could arrest you for collecting plants in Central Park?
1: There's no law, a law is passed by a legislature. There was a park regulation against removing vegetation from the park, which would apply to kindergarten children uh, taking colored leaves home as well as me foraging. What I found out years later from uh, former Parks Commissioner Adrian Benefee, was that the uh, Parks administration were all terrified of frivolous lawsuits. If they tolerated me foraging, uh, one day someone would pretend to have been poisoned foraging, uh, sue the city, and say that, oh, foraging is allowed, this wild man has been has been foraging. So when they charge you with one crime and the real reason is a hidden agenda that is a case of official wrongdoing it's called false arrest and i wish they'd do it again (laughs) there's always something behind uh, there's a reason that uh, there is so much distrust of the of the government and politics today And that is because government officials abuse their power. I'm an expert in edible plants, not in in political science. So I don't really know um, uh, what the solution is to this problem, which is also age old. Now, in terms of foraging in Central Park, um, it seems very unlikely, but if you understand how ecosystems work, which is part of what you get when you learn foraging, uh, in hindsight, it's very obvious um, now I, I know you use four-letter words sometimes on this podcast. So there's one that starts with a D and ends with an R, and the two middle letters are both E. So outside the city, the deer eat everything. This, yeah. For uh,
2: example, today um, we were in Millbrook, New York, and there were um, there were plants, but compared to just like our regular everyday tours. There were there were like a tenth of as much we would find and Prospect Park, Central Park. It, there's um, so little where the uh, where the deer is compared to just everyday tours in the city or somewhere where there wouldn't normally be tours. Yeah. And right we deer.
1: do. We did pri- private property tour in, in uh, uh, Millbrook uh, in upstate New York. Uh, during the morning and then we did a tour for cooking students from texas in central park in the uh, late afternoon so this has been quite a busy day and as violet said there's absolutely no comparison plus we have all of the native plants and plants from all over the world Uh, so the city parks where there are no deer the only predator of the of the plants is the lawnmower And the lawnmowers are deathly afraid of mowing things near benches or lampposts or fences because then the operator gets fired if they ruin the lawnmower by running into one of these objects. So there's a lot of places that are manicured, and there are tons and tons of places that are completely, uh, completely overgrown. Uh, Plus, the deer have all downloaded my app.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've written a number of books about foraging for wild foods, and, and you have an app how have you seen just sort of generally the public perception towards this practice of, of foraging for wild edibles? How has it changed since, you know, back in the eighties when you got started?
1: Well, again, it's, uh, I had one tour in the eighties where we had one person on the tour and then we had one two years ago where the only time I ever turned people away, we had more than a hundred. Uh, and especially with information being uh, exchanged on the internet, lots of uh, forums on Facebook for foraging and other other forums and other forms uh, the info is much much more accessible on the app you can yeah. carry with you you and get uh, instead of uh, one or two pictures in a book uh, you get photos of the plants in all their life stages plus I do uh, botanical illustrations that emphasize the important identifying characteristics
2: yeah and it's like it's spread with a lot of people like the amount of people that are foraging increases um, very often I mean people are have social media now and they have and not just like word of mouth but they have social media people um, people tell their friends about it more and more people are going to be interested in um, these in these um, in foraging in these plants the environmental people are going to help spread it, are going to help spread it, and we, we want to teach people to, for more people to care about the environment, and the amount of people is definitely getting larger each year, um, that like foraging, and like caring about the, the earth.
1: Yeah, the two go together. There used to be an old uh, <clears throat> uh, saying, take nothing but photos, leave nothing but footprints, and that is totally outdated and, and wrong, because you want to have, uh interaction with the environment. Uh one, one experiment that impressed me very greatly is that scientists turned kids loose in the forest without any instruction at all to just do whatever they wanted. So they were whacking trees with sticks, they were building forts, uh, all the kinds of things that uh unsupervised kids do to have fun in the woods. And then they did an environmental impact statement and they found that the environmental impact of uh kids playing unsupervised in the woods was equal to the environmental impact of camping. So obviously you can have contact with nature and uh, the plants we pick are completely renewable. They are uh, usually considered weeds. On rare occasions we find something rare and uh, those we, uh, we look at and study and leave alone or we find them where they're in tremendous abundance and then uh, thin them out imperceptibly Uh, by taking a a very tiny fraction. Uh, But uh, there isn't a single weed or nut or berry tree that has fallen over because we've been eating the berries from the same spots for uh, now 34 years. So it's a different conception of the environment than you get from sitting in your armchair. And you also get an emotional connection to the environment which is very important. And motivating conservation.
0: A lot of my friends go out and hunt deer and elk right around this time of year every year and you know hearing the way that my friends talk about the experience of getting out into the outdoors and and, and hunting and tracking animals and, and harvesting these deer and elk for meat uh, is, is, is similar in a lot of ways to the experience that you're describing that you have and like the connection that it gives you with the outdoors
1: Definitely cultural, cultural too. I mean, I I don't hunt animals except for cattails and hen of the woods and chicken mushrooms and lamb's quarters and sheep sorrel. But uh, we were we were doing a tour today uh, for, as I said, for a family on private property upstate, and there were two boys. And as we were walking along, the two boys took uh, found long sticks on the ground and were having fun. Do. Dueling in in Millbrook. No, it wasn't in Millbrook. It
2: was only a four-year-old. Oh, family. I'm sorry.
1: No, that was in Central Park with the with the violence. <laughs> right, that was in Central Park with the cooking uh, cooking uh, students. There were a couple of kids there, and the two boys took uh, sticks and were dueling with them and having and having fun. Well, there's a, a shrub called the cornelian cherry. It's not a chariot, It's in the dogwood family. It has very very tasty yeah. berries.
2: Most dogwoods are poisonous, but um, dogwood along with the dogwood are two examples that aren't poisonous. That's are edible.
1: Yeah, and they are very very good. So I had been on a uh, TV talk show uh, quite a number of years ago, and they were not generous enough to. to uh, this is before I had a car to drive me back and forth to the studio in a taxi. And in the taxi on the way home at a red light, I was talking to the taxi driver, and I showed him um, uh, one of my books. He said he was from the country of Turkey, and the Cornelian cherry comes from Turkey. So I opened to that page and showed it to him, and he tells me, oh, yes, we know oh, yeah. this and We know this one in Turkey. And
2: he, and he says that's the, na- the national fruit of Turkey.
1: Yes, and also... It has very, very thin branches. It's a bush. It's not a tree. The branches are long, thin, and flexible. And he told me back in the Bronze Age, people would uh, break off these long, thin branches and give one to one boy and another to another boy. And they would duel. And they would duel. So it's this bush that... The Bronze Age uh, warriors from uh, from Achilles to Odysseus that grows in Central Park because it has pretty flowers uh, early in the spring when there's not much uh, not much color around the landscape is planted all over Central Park. And coincidentally, it has delicious berries. Uh, that's what all the legendary warriors used to learn their craft, so there's lots of connections. People used to spend most of their lives outdoors, not indoors. So poetry, literature, um, and art very often has these nature connections, which uh, people uh, today have lost. So we go into cultural aspects, uh, music, art. I do botanical illustrations, as I mentioned. So I show the uh, uh, salient features on the artwork in my app, uh, as well as the photos which just show everything. So these connections are really, really important and they're important for conservation. Uh,
0: How much of the food that you eat are composed of these wild foods? I mean, when you guys go to the grocery store, like what do you you buy?
2: (laughs) We get asked this question a lot. Um, We do go to the grocery store and we buy just like our normal everyday food, like not unhealthy food though. I mean, my dad's um, a vegan. And uh, I don't eat that much meat, and I don't eat that much meat. But um, I would say that like w- about one tenth of our diet is made up of wild foods. I mean, we make salads and we add like some wild foods in them. We make fruit salad and we put wild fruits in it, and um, we we incorporate wild foods to the appropriate food dish that well, that would taste good. Again, we do a lot, a lot of cooking. And um, and so, yeah, I think one-tenth of our diet is made up of wild foods. Yeah,
1: it yeah. depends on what food. I mean, we get 100% of our mushrooms from the wild. And Violet, uh, when she was 10 from a moving car, found a 30-pound chicken mushroom and uh, took two years to finish all the recipes I made. <laughs> Uh, that had been in the freezer. So 100% of the mushrooms, uh, maybe about uh, 30% of the uh, fruits and and greens, uh, legumes and grains. Um, they're not. Those are those are things that became prominent in human diets once agriculture was invented. Uh, so although there are some seeds of a wild millet around. Um, most tail
2: of the yeah. plants that we
1: found today. Yeah, that's well, very common. Yeah. Um, most of the legumes and grains we get in the uh, health food store, and I haven't seen any tofu trees around. Although, to- although uh, people complain tofu has no flavor, there's a mushroom called the giant puffball. Uh, that is soft and white, and you cut into cubes, and it's like what tofu would be like if tofu had
0: flavor.
2: And you can make, like, a vegan cream cheese with a puffball. It's, really, um, it's really nice.
0: Do each of you have a favorite wild edible plant, or I guess it could be plant or mushroom?
1: Of course. My favorite edible wild plant is the violet.
2: <laughs> and my favorite would be maybe, like, a plant called wood sorrel or, or like a berry called, um, the, um, the wild raspberry. Um, there's so many good, like good edible plants. Like there's black birch, um, uh, there's so many of them, and for mushrooms, the chicken mushroom would be my favorite. Wood is very sour; it tastes like lemonade. The chicken mushroom has the texture of chicken and it tastes kind of like chicken. And um, black birch tastes like wintergreen; it has oil of wintergreen in it, known as methyl salicylate, it's a painkiller, and the Native Americans used it. And, of course, they have different stages of time and year. There's a plant called garlic mustard. It's leaves would taste it. um, I mean, it all has the same general taste, but, like, in terms of texture, the leaves will taste different than the seeds, which will taste different than the, like, flowers in terms of texture because it's, like, it's all different.
1: Yeah, well, Um, the roots roots taste like horseradish. And the seeds are mustard seeds, but you don't have to grind them up They're like chewy. commercial mustards. You can bake them into bread like caraway seeds, but you get um, a special mustard flavor with them. And uh, there's nuts, too. I remember when she was four, black she was cracking black walnuts I do with not
2: rocks. like walnuts. I only like the black <laughs> walnut. The black walnut is the best walnut in the world. And I also like the hickory nut, chag hickory. And like I love the wild nuts. I don't really like store-bought nuts, but I like wild ones.
1: They are they are really good. Hundred I mean, times better. There are there are some problems of course. <laughs> and uh, blackberries, so I used to pick oh, tons of them. It's but kind they've of sad gone actually. Yeah, they've gone into great decline. Tell them why. Yeah,
2: exactly. yeah it's blackberries do- have gone to great decline um, through the past few years. Yeah. Sad. Cause there's too much competition with the iPhone. <laughs> How many you never.
0: <laughs> <used to play>? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I, I love hearing about, you know, I mean, you guys are obviously really passionate about this and, and spend a lot of time. It's
1: so much fun. And enriches yeah. people's lives when they, uh, when they get into this and, and the stuff is super healthy. Whenever the nutrition is analyzed, there's way more nutrients in the wild foods than in the store bought ones. And they're free. And you're, you're, um modern people are not going to live exclusively on wild foods. Yeah, but you add some of these to your yeah. other meals, it makes them special, and the flavors are uh, incredible. And, again, they're things that no one uses. The celebrity chefs are all involved with their fish and pork, white flour, yeah, sugar and, actually, and eggs.
2: Um, I was just watching on Netflix the uh, – Um, the kids baking championships like of America and like not one dish they made you did not use sugar not one dish they made did not use sugar and that's like (laughs) now there's a lot of kids there
1: (laughs) you can't get much uh, Uh, sugar, white sugar I think is probably right under tobacco as a as a health threat, and there are there's an herb that's been used for thousands of years in Central America called stevia, and you can buy extracts in the health store.
2: Yeah, some people that say is, that they don't care for stevia, but you know, at the at most stores, they don't sell the good stevia; they sell the one with a bitter aftertaste.
1: Yeah, there are clear. Yeah. There are there are the several brands, brands that have clear stevia, so that's one of my favorite sweeteners. Yeah. But getting back to the wild ingredients, and you go to any Japanese restaurant. And uh, they have seaweeds, which were unknown as food when I was when I was uh, a kid, and have become very popular. But Japan is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We uh, we live near the Atlantic Ocean. There are Atlantic seaweeds that have never made it into the yeah. food culture. There's one called rockweed. Rockweed
2: is ha- the best seaweed in the world.
1: Uh, It is incredibly delicious. In 1803, scientists first isolated and identified iodine from that plant. And before that and after, it was used for thyroid problems. If the thyroid problems were caused by iodine deficiency, uh, they would be cured. Now, rockweed is a difficult plant for me to work with, mainly because I'm a jazz fan. Uh, But uh, still... Uh, one of the one of the recent things I did with it is I baked it in a puree of white miso, sesame oil, pine nuts, with the addition of wild coffee from Central Park, melted baker's chocolate, uh, some stevia, and a few dates for extra sweetness, and uh, it turns into chips, a little like a sweet chocolate flavored kale chips. Yeah, we mix
2: that with. Um mix those tiny pieces with um cashews and raisins um and, and, carrot and, chips. and carrot chips and i make a trail mix Then one day very very hot during the summer and the chocolate all melted the carrot chips I mean, were the like carrot chips the carrot chips all melt into like a gooey thing and, and then um and we tasted. We tried to eat that, and we uh, well, it was all melted and everything. And then, um, we brought it home. We put the we didn't have time to unpack the lunchbox. We put it back into the refrigerator. And when we took it out, we wanted more of the of the trail mix. So we tried more of it. It was hard. It was kind of like a bar. It was like candy. So this time, so now what we did was we purposely. Um, melted it we purposely um, yeah, a, um, froze it and like and made um, defrosted a little bit and we purposely cut it into squares and made this rock candy. So it was a happy accident we we from um, trail mix during a hot day to rock candy.
1: First starting with chips, First yeah. seaweed chips. Um, and the, the wild coffee in Central Park is incredible. It's There's caffeine, Kentucky
2: coffee treat.
1: It's caffeine free. And um, I don't like coffee, so I made coffee with it once. It tasted just like coffee. I spit it out. Uh, and then I realized it was an incredible complementary flavor for chocolate. So uh, besides making this uh, chocolate seaweed trail mix, we put this in hot chocolate. We put it in chocolate brownies in uh, chocolate pudding and uh, that that uh, wild coffee flavor added to the chocolate is absolutely wonderful. With with cooking, it's sometimes the small, subtle seasonings that make a big difference. We make chocolate truffles with that uh, as well.
0: You have uh, some of these recipes that you're talking about in one of the books that you've published.
1: Oh, all my books have recipes. One is a cookbook, um, the Wild Vegan Cookbook. I have Identifying and Harvesting Edible and Medicinal Plants.
2: Foraging with in Kids.
1: In wild and not-so-wild not so places. It has my recipes. Foraging with Kids has Foraging uh, additional with kids
2: recipes. Has the most, um, it's um, a simple early learning book, like early um, forager book with um, most easy and recognized plants um, and recipes to folklore,
1: games that kids can play with the plants. Mythology. Yeah, so and there's the myth of Violet, where she's Zeus's girlfriend, but he doesn't want her to find out, so he turns her into a cow, um, and uh, she has to eat grass, but it hurts her mouth, and she starts to cry, and Zeus turns all of her teardrops into Violet's, Uh, there's a lot of mythology dealing with the plants. And I also have uh, shoots and greens of early spring in Northeastern North America, which covers the first plants to come up. These all have recipes. There are hundreds of recipes in my um, wild edibles forage app. And uh, the next update will have additional hundreds of recipes because I'm always experimenting with these things and the stuff tastes really good. I, uh, wind up giving samples out during the lunch breaks of uh, on my tours. Yeah, when we find the is, plants
2: we give out samples we make like we use the plant common plant time, we make it into chips and we uh, we put spreads on it, roast it, make it into chips and um, and we give those out on our tours. We give all the samples that we make out. Yeah, we
1: make pesto with putting, garlic mustard, which is a notorious invasive weed. We've come up with so many recipes uh, for for that plant. Uh, the Cornelian cherries that we mentioned earlier, I make puddings, ice creams, and sorbet.
2: And with within. blackbirds, which we also mentioned earlier, it tastes like wintergreen, as I said. Um, we use that as um, we make stick pudding and with tapioca pudding, we remove the sticks at the end, but it flavors the wintergreen. The end does.
1: Yeah, it has, it has a wintergreen flavor, way better than wintergreen extract, which you can get in specialty stores. So the stick pudding is a tapio- tapioca pudding. The liquids are almond milk and coconut milk. The sweetener is stevia. There are raisins in there, um, a, vanilla, a fresh vanilla bean, which works better than vanilla extract. And uh, freshly grated lemon rind, which is uh, better than dried lemon rind or lemon extract. And black birch sticks. So you get this creamy sweet pudding. You can add nuts also. Uh, creamy sweet pudding with the flavor of uh, vanilla, lemon, and wintergreen.
0: Is, is there anything that folks should be concerned about if they're heading out, uh, uh, you know, starting to, to forge for plants? And, I mean, obviously, like, you can misidentify plants and potentially... That's,
1: that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you,
2: Poisonous plants. Yeah,
1: but, if you it, yeah, if
2: you get it... If you get it... If you get the it, plant wrong... <laughs> 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 we call that the Brillaphone. It's not the saxophone. It's the Brillaphone because their last name's Brill and um, it's an instrument that we play with our hands.
1: Which I learned from my dad. Oh yeah, you have to identify everything with 100% certainty or try it on the boss first. Uh, you don't want to pick where there is obvious, uh, obvious pollution or contamination. Yeah,
2: especially and, a
1: plant called field garlic. Yeah, there's, uh, we actually did have one fatality. Uh, there's a plant called field garlic. It's related to onions and garlic. And I told people there's a similar looking plant called Star of Bethlehem. The field garlic has round leaves. The Star of Bethlehem has flat leaves. The field garlic smells like onions and garlic. The Star of Bethlehem has no odor. Five minutes later, someone was putting the poisonous plant into her bag. I stopped her before she could eat any, but the poor woman still succumbed. She yeah, died- she
2: died of embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: obviously you've got you know sort of specific concerns about certain areas i mean is is that something that that like sort of concerns you generally and no. because because you do all this foraging in like central park i mean they must use like you know herbicides and stuff and in, in certain areas no, i would
2: expect the yeah, well,
0: they oh. don't
2: use pesticides because um what we tell is when we find a plant called lamb's quarters um they have lots of the plants that have all the bug damage in it
1: yeah, and there are bees flying around, which is a Lots good indicator. Insects. But the the uh, Central Park Conservancy does stuff by hand. Uh, the dangerous stuff is all the spraying you get on plants in the supermarket. Uh, well, I have Wash
2: your apple first. Wash your apple first.
1: Yeah, you but know, you can't get all of that out. Um, I did a tour once at the Monmouth Battleground Park in uh, New Jersey. I, I remember it was like a hundred degrees. This was uh, this was. Uh, Probably in the late 80s and they came with a truck with a nozzle bigger than you and sprayed clouds of toxins on the peaches and they were doing that every day. That's when I went 100 percent organic Um, uh, unless something is obviously close to a heavy, heavy traffic or uh, was uh, was uh, former factory. uh, The stuff that you that you buy in the supermarket is more likely to be contaminated.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you guys. Maybe just as a parting note, you can just sort of uh, share with folks you know, where they can go to learn more about um, the work that you guys do and you know, maybe join a tour if there are folks live, that live in the New York area um, or purchase one of your books.
1: Yeah, when well, we go outside of New York, we're in Connecticut. We go down to Pennsylvania.
2: Philadelphia, one um about three times a year at Pennypack Farm.
1: Yeah, and we, we've been invited up to Lenox, Massachusetts, and we're uh, we're available. We're available to travel. Wildman Steve Brill, B-R-I-L-L dot com, and the app is three words: Wild Edibles Forage, and it has a silhouette of me in green with my uh, trademark explorers. Don't
2: get the other app that it is my head that's also called Wild Edibles, it came out the same day with the same name, it'll kill you. This is a life-or-death situation now. You have to choose the right app.
1: Okay, there are some apps that have uh, mistaken information and there are books as well. So cross-reference, that's another good thing to do. And also cross-reference the scientific names of the plants because common names can be quite Misleading, and sometimes there's an edible plant and a poisonous plant, and in different parts of the world have the same common name. Um, but uh, we we cover all of these all of these facets in the in the books and in the in the app. And reality, uh, no one has gotten sick in. Uh, 34 years of the tour. Two close calls. Two reporters got poisoned. But they'd eaten in delis and they had never arrived at my tour. If it had been five five minutes later, they would have blamed me.
0: Well, thanks again to both of you. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you guys and learning all this great information about foraging. Uh, Okay, thanks. It's a pleasure. Happy foraging.
2: Happy foraging. Last
0: thing we have to say is...
1: That's
0: all, folks. All right. That was our conversation with expert foragers, wild man Steve Brill and his daughter, Violet Brill. I love how focused Steve and Violet are on having fun while they forage for and cook with wild edible foods. they talked a lot about the direct health benefits of consuming uh, wild plants and mushrooms, but you also can't ignore the indirect benefits that come along with spending more time outdoors and remaining active and having fun, of course. And Steve and Violet clearly have not forgotten about the benefit to the environment and local ecosystems as well. As Steve explained, teaching people to forage encourages a type of stewardship and respect for these natural places that you just don't get with other types of outdoor activities. It's about developing a more engaged and active relationship with your local environment and accepting the fact that you are a part of that ecosystem. So if you'd like to learn more about foraging for wild foods and how to get started foraging for yourself, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode where you'll find links to all of the amazing resources that Wildman Steve has developed over the years, his books, the app uh, will all provide information on identifying wild edibles as well as recipes for cooking with these wild foods. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC94. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. And if you really want to help us out, you can leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. This really helps new people discover the show. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.